In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm Angela Serser, former FBI special agent and profiler. I'm Susan Kostler-Drew, former FBI special agent and profiler. And I'm Bob Drew, former FBI agent and profiler. Today we're going to begin our multi-part discussion about the serial killer Israel Keys. Although he's suspected in many more killings, we're only going to discuss the murders of Lorraine and William Courier from Essex, Vermont, and Samantha Koenig from Anchorage, Alaska, because these were the cases we actually worked on. I think our perspective on these cases is interesting because they came into us at the behavioral analysis unit separately. And of course, at the time, we had no idea that they were connected. You can't get much farther apart than Vermont and Alaska. And this gives us a great opportunity to discuss the difficulties in attributing murders to serial killers. Before we get into the facts of this investigation, let's first talk about how and why the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit might get involved in an investigation. There are several ways that a case might have come to us. The first one being is what happened in this case was that we received a call from an FBI agent in the field, someone who we would call a field coordinator an NCABC field coordinator, National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. This is something that I was out in the field before I came to the Behavioral Analysis Unit. You are a liaison with all of the local and state police departments. And should they have a case that they feel might benefit from some behavioral analysis, then they would initially, sometimes they go direct to the Behavioral Analysis Unit, but usually they would reach out to the field coordinator in one of the FBI's division offices, field offices, and ask for assistance. The field coordinator would then reach out to the NCABC and the appropriate unit where that case would be handled. I think, as we mentioned before, it's divided up according to the types of crimes that are being investigated, whether it's a crimes against adults, crimes against children, whether this is a terrorism case, et cetera. And in this case, a field coordinator reached out to the crimes against adults unit and said that the Essex Police Department had requested our assistance. That's followed up by them then turning over police records, documents, et cetera, with regards to the case that can be reviewed. And then there is either a telephone consultation. We're in a conference room on one end of that line and they're in a conference room on the other. And we discuss the case. Sometimes there's more than one of those. On occasion, if it warrants it, we will actually go to the site and uh, review crime scenes and have the consultation in person. 
can be one time, it can be multiple times. Sometimes it is more urgent because say an abduction or a kidnapping has happened and they are requesting immediate assistance. Sometimes we're looking at these a year later, five years later, or as recently as maybe a month prior that were called in. I think it's important to note though, that unlike some of the shows that you'll see on TV that we don't take over the case. We don't make arrests. We don't fly around in a private chartered jet and get to have cocktails on the way home from the consultation. This is the case always remains with the police department and they remain in charge. This is strictly a consultation. And after we provide the information that they have requested, and then sometimes that's where our involvement ends unless they request further information from us. So the primary way is through the field coordinator, but it can, sometimes they contact us directly. They may also contact the VICAP unit. They're the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program is a voluntary program that for sexual assaults, for homicides, there is police departments can fill out a form and submit it to VICAP so that their case particulars can then be compared to cases throughout the United States. In some countries, filling out this form is mandatory, but it is voluntary in the United States. So although it has been beneficial in linking cases in some circumstances, it is only as good as the information that is put into it. And some cases would not be complete because of the voluntary nature of the program. Right. I think, too, that all of us prior to being selected for the behavioral analysis unit were coordinators, field coordinators prior to our selection. And the field coordinators have some training. It's very limited. It's more about how to submit cases and liaison and interact with the behavioral analysis unit. But they're not profilers but it's kind of a stepping stone. So if you want to be a profiler, oftentimes you apply to be a field coordinator in your field office. So for example, Susan and I were field coordinators in the Boston division when we were both in the Boston division. And that led to our selection to the unit. And Bob was a field coordinator in the New York division prior to joining the Crimes Against Adults unit. Yeah, not everyone starts out as a field coordinator because they do pull in experts from the field. For example, Angela was an expert in terrorism, so she was recruited to be in the behavioral analysis unit. So they try to get the experts that are out there working these cases in the field. All right, let's get into the facts of this case. Lorraine Courier was 55 years old, and her husband, William Courier, was 50, and they were reported missing to the Essex, Vermont Police Department on Thursday, June 9th of 2011 by Diana Smith, who was William's sister. Diana had actually worked with Lorraine at Fletcher Allen Healthcare in Burlington, Vermont, and she became concerned when Lorraine had failed to show up for work. The last time anyone saw Bill and Lorraine was the day prior on June 8th while they were at their places of employment. And Lorraine had not called out sick. She had not taken any leave. She had not made any kind of arrangements to be absent. And this was very uncharacteristic of her. So Diana then tried calling William 
at his place of employment, which was the University of Vermont Animal Care, but they told Diana that he had not come into work that day either. Like Lorraine, William had not made any arrangements to be absent, which was uncharacteristic for him as well. After not being able to contact them at their places of work, Diana then called their home. When she received no answer there, she drove to their home and found that the house was locked and that their car was not in the garage. When the Essex Police Department arrived, they also noted that the house was locked, all the window shades were pulled down. They entered the garage through an open window and found that the window of the door leading from the interior of the garage into the kitchen had been broken from the garage side. Broken glass was everywhere. It was on the steps leading up to the door as well as on the floor far into the kitchen, indicating a fairly forceful impact. The telephone lines were also found to have been cut or crimped as if by wire cutters as opposed to a bladed type of instrument. There were no signs of ransacking or a struggle in the house. A fan on the kitchen table was running. The couriers had pet birds and they were in their cages and the cages were covered. There were no notes, calendar entries or appointment book entries regarding vacation or other plans that would explain why the couriers were missing. William's diabetes medication and his wallet containing his identification were found in the home as well as Lorraine's heart medication, her glasses, and her contact lenses. Lorraine also kept a Ruger pistol beneath her mattress, and it was not located in the home either. The following day, which was Friday, June 10, 2011, the courier's car, which was a dark green Saturn sedan, was found about two miles from their home parked near an apartment building. The keys were not in the car. The driver's seat was pushed all the way back, and the passenger seat was pushed all the way forward. A piece of broken glass from the garage door window of the home was found on the floor of the front passenger side. It appeared the contents of the trunk, which included assorted clothing and a 12-pack of soda, had been moved from the trunk to the back passenger area floor. Jumper cables, however, were left in the trunk. This is what we knew at the time that the case came into the unit, and the Essex Police Department had contacted us and contacted our field coordinator in Vermont very quickly. So we learned about this soon after it happened. A lot of times, behavioral analysis unit doesn't get involved in a case for consultation till much later, or sometimes many years later. But the police department, right off the bat, knew something was very wrong and contacted the local FBI, who then contacted us. So, you know, the first thing we want to know is tell us all about the victims. What did they tell us at the time? What did we know about them? Well, as you mentioned before, William was a 50-year-old white male. He was average height, about 5'11", heavy build, wore glasses. We know he was a diabetic. He required daily medication for that. He also suffered from ulcerative colitis, and he also had a back condition or a spinal condition that caused vertebrae to fuse, and it would make basically give him stiff neck and back to the point where he had a limited ability to turn his head. 
And because of this condition, he had trouble sleeping quite a bit. He was a former cigarette smoker. He drank moderately, at least. And he occasionally smoked marijuana. He was not a participant in organized religion. He grew up within the, the Methodist faith. But as an adult, he was more of someone who pursued his spiritual interests on a private basis. He was a veteran. He served in the United States Army from 79 to 1983 and was discharged honorably. Since that time, he had been employed up to the point where he went missing. He was employed at the University of Vermont laboratory as an animal care technician. His coworkers described him as, as someone who was well-liked, but quiet and reserved. He was punctual, reliable, competent worker. And one of the things that, that was noted about him was that as far as his drinking, he, he mostly drank at home, mostly did everything at home. He was a homebody and he, did, he really didn't socialize with anyone but family. His family members liked him. He generally kept regular hours. He went to bed early and he got up early. He liked caring for, for his birds. He liked watching movies on, on the internet. He liked playing video games. And he ordered quite a bit of merchandise from the internet. And he liked listening to music. He watched sporting events on television. And he liked gardening in his yard. He, liked, he enjoyed swimming in his pool. And he did that several nights per week in warm weather. William had an office in his house where he had, he spent a lot of time and he had his guitar in there. He had a television, he had a personal computer and he spent a lot of time in there and most of the time on the computer. He had been subscribed to some, some social activity sites, but it's unknown how active he was in them. Other than that, he, I mean, that was, that was more or less his life was that he went to work and he came home. Home was, was for relaxing and socializing with family and going into his, his room and, and either, you know, playing guitar, watching TV, or going on the internet. This seems like a lot of detail about William, but as we've mentioned before, the reason for going into such detail about a person's personal and professional life is that we are looking for areas of vulnerability or uh, risk that might have caused them to be targeted. And from the very beginning, this looked, this was a suspicious disappearance. There was concern that foul play. And so the Essex Police Department did a good job of really looking into their backgrounds to see if there was anything there that might have caused them to be the target of a violent crime. Much like William Lorraine was very much a homebody. As previously mentioned, she was 56 years old. She was medium to short height, medium build. She suffered from some heart issues and had to be on daily medication as a result of that. But she also was a cigarette smoker and she did consume alcoholic beverages and occasionally marijuana. Due to a previous injury with her ankle, she walked with a, a limp. Like William, she did not socialize very much outside of the home. She probably her most interaction with other people was at work. And like William, was very reliable, very dependable, had worked at the same location for numerous years and was considered to be a good worker. She was very close with her family. She maintained close contact with her siblings. It was noted that 
she had lost a brother some years earlier and she had taken this very hard and seemed to have become more sad and withdrawn since his death. She had, for the most part, been described as quiet and compassionate, but it was also noted that in more recent years, she seemed to have taken a more active interest in politics, particularly conservative politics, and was known to voice her concern over political events at the time and had that she had become increasingly suspicious of government. And again, this is in within the context of things that were happening in 2011. Again, much like her husband during the work week was in bed early and up early to make sure she was at work on time. We looked at both individuals separately, but we also looked at them as a couple and how they lived as a couple. We know that they were married for 26 years, no children. This was William's first marriage. It was it was Lorraine's second marriage. In her prior marriage, it resulted in divorce, and then her first husband committed suicide. And I mention that because oftentimes with an existing ex, there becomes a th- potential threat from a past relationship. And that, in this case, is obviously not pertinent. But it would have been something to look at because yes. her first in her first marriage, the husband was abusive. Yes. By all uh, reports, they got along very well. And being both homebodies, they spent a great deal of time together. But there were some things that they did separately. They had separate bedrooms, for instance. But their relationship was just described as quite friendly and inappropriate. Close companionship. Yes. Sometimes uh, Lorraine would spend weekends away with her sisters as the couple had a camp that was located in Norton, Vermont, and William would stay home on those weekends. They had no no known conflicts in in the relationship. Based on everything that we saw, we put them at a low to moderate risk as becoming potential victims of violent crime. And the reason they would just be otherwise low. The only thing is that back at this time, marijuana was still an illicit substance. Whereas, you know, today, in many instances, it is not. Back in that, at that time, in order to obtain marijuana, the couple would have needed to interact with someone who could uh, procure that for them. And it would have to be through illicit means. Clearly, obtaining marijuana in Vermont is not the equivalent of obtaining more serious drugs on the street. However, this is an an illicit process that has to be thought of. And the other thing that somewhat elevated the potential for them to be victims of violent crime would be because William, in his involvement in the internet, it was unknown who he may have contacted may have disclosed some personal information about himself. Or arranged uh, meetings or... Yes, or how he spent his time on these weekends. Whether it be that he socialized with people that he had, had met via the internet, etc. And just that unknown slightly elevated their risk. Overall, we, we instead of saying they were low, we put them at low to moderate risk of being victims of violent crime. And at the time, because this came in so soon after the abduction, the extent of his internet activities was not known at all. We had no idea. We knew he was on the internet. We knew he talked to people. We had no idea 
what those discussions were about or entailed. It was something that had to be looked at in their background because otherwise they were extremely low risk victims. And even though they were homebodies, they weren't recluses. They, I mean, they had a lot of interaction. They went to work every day, had interaction with their coworkers, neighbors described that, and family members described they had a lot of family that would visit all the time. So they had a lot of interaction with their family and lived in a safe area, which we'll talk a little bit about the area and the demographics. But again, at the time, we just had no idea. So that's why we talk about all this. We bring this up. All this has to be explored when you have a crime that was so strange as this. Exactly. And it was so new that not only did we not have the information with regards to computer use, but none of the forensic processing of the car, processing of the home, et cetera, none of that had been completed yet either. Really were looking at every as trying to think of every aspect that could be examined here to give us an indication of what might've happened. To yeah. the and, and of course we know now that didn't matter how high risk they might've been. We know who did it now, but at the time, you know, this is, this was our perspective. This is how it came in. And we knew none of these things. And it was really important to rule out everything in their normal everyday lives. That's why also when we get to investigative suggestions, at times, in cases like these, you'll give the suggestions to the police department once they're able to follow through with some of them. Like what Sue was saying, if you don't have forensic evidence that hasn't been analyzed or you don't have the computer analysis to see if there was any, you know, who the contact with was with when he did his computer searches. Once they answer those questions, then it can give BAU some more information to reassess. So another thing that we consider when doing a consult is demographics and statistics. So that would mean the demographics of the area where the potential crime took place and criminal statistics, not just for that area, but throughout the United States, especially if it's related to the kind of crime such as abduction, which we're talking about potentially here. So anyway, Okay, at the time of this incident, the data available was around 20, it was uh, between the years of 2005 to 2009 for the area of Essex Junction, Vermont. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau's American Fact Finder, the population of Essex Junction was estimated to be about 8,939 people. That includes adults between the age of 18 and 65 years of age would be 76.8% of the population. The racial data estimated that 89% of Essex Junction's total population was white, 1.9% was black, 4.4% was Asian, and 15.1% was Hispanic or Latino of any race. The 2009 median household income was $61,670. Also available at the time from the FBI's National Crime Information Center, which we refer to as NCIC, in the year 2010, 692,944 missing person records were entered into NCIC. Missing person records cleared or canceled during that same year totaled 703,316. By the end of 2010, there were only 
85,820 remaining active entries. In 2010, there were 67,030 missing persons files pertaining to women over the age of 18 and 93,974 missing persons files pertaining to men over the age of 18. Of those missing persons over the age of 21 years, 42,471 were categorized as endangered meaning those individuals went missing under circumstances indicating they may be in physical danger. I know we've done it on other episodes and understanding the, the crime problem in the area. I think what happens is people have certain ideas about how often crimes occur. They probably would not guess that that many people were reported missing in the United States on any given year or in this year in particular. I like to give perspective, and it's certainly useful in looking at a case when you say, clearly, for instance, in, the, in this case where the couriers went missing, we find this case to be very unusual. However, to categorize this case at the time that we received it, we would call it adult missing persons. And that is not a rare report in the United States on any given year. So where the average person would think it was a lot rarer than it actually is. We also, in mentioning the racial breakdown and the overall population and other characteristics of the surrounding area and of the, of the people who, who are residing in the surrounding area, you want to start to get an inkling about how probable certain characteristics are for who this offender might be. Overall, these are things that are not opinion, and I think it's important, and we certainly adopted the, the practices to stress this type of information because in some cases it influenced our opinions, in others it just complemented what we included as professional opinion within the analysis. I think we always wanted to include objective facts like demographics, like statistics on crime, like the racial breakdown, etc., to corroborate some of the observations we were making. That's why we present this information. It's kind of like an analysis within the overall analysis. So it's worth mentioning that you're not always going to be able to get the statistics of the crime statistics of the specific town or area that you're working with, but it's still useful to, as Bob was saying, to get the national statistics. It's good to know these things because we're looking at probabilities. And they're not always correct. You know, you're talking no. about race. You have a crime that occurs in an area that's predominantly one race and without exterior information telling you otherwise, you might just accept or at least engage in the probability that that particular race is the race of the offender, but it's not always that way. Actually, this is probably a good time to mention the application of probability and the limits of applying probability in our analyses. Yes. In this case, we know that the individual who was eventually who was eventually found to be responsible was in fact, what we would term a serial killer. However, minus anything that, that clearly indicates links, definite links between a number of murders, 
you would not, by probability, conclude that any case was the work of a serial killer. By its definition, it has to be more than one case. You cannot responsibly tell someone that their case is the result of, or the person responsible for their case is a serial killer without definite indication that it's related to other, another case. And minus that, that cannot be a presumption. And it's not, it's not a responsible presumption when you're doing an analysis on a single case. And for that reason, the case analysis was limited by the knowledge we had at the time that we were presented with this case. And at the time we were presented with this case, we thought it was a singular occurrence that this couple in Essex, Vermont, went missing. It was related to no other case that we knew of and bore no likeness to any other case that had been reported, at least that had come to the attention of the involved law enforcement agencies. So there were no but, other similar cases in the area. No. And not only in the area, if you expand it out and looking at our VICAP database, there were no other similar cases in VICAP. No. And we know at the time this this was an isolated event at the time. There was no indication that this was a series of any kind. There's a lot of misinformation about profiling and about the behaviors of serial killers. One of the things that first and foremost is that serial killers act similarly to other serial killers. The only thing that we can guarantee they have in common is that they're serial killers. Right. A hitman for organized crime who kills numerous people could be termed a serial killer. A medical person who poisons patients could also be deemed a serial killer. Even serial sexual killers are not the same. No. I mean, you're talking about the most individualistic aspects of, or some of the most individualistic aspects of, of human personality and behavior, and saying that someone else is just like that person is just false. There are a couple of things that conflict with each other, a couple of mythical thoughts. And one is that serial murderers have a hunting ground, that they are comfortable only within this hunting ground, and they, they will only offend in that area. Yet there's another belief that serial murders are highly mobile and that they travel everywhere, and you, you never know where they're going to pop up. Well, both could be true. You could have a highly mobile serial killer that can go from state to state, as we saw historically with people like Ted Bundy. And you can also have someone who operates in a certain small geographic area that they are comfortable in. As small as a particular neighborhood. Yes, or just a street. That could very well be the case. Going back to Jack the Ripper, it was one particular neighborhood in England that he was killing women. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. A highly mobile person can have within the different locations they travel to have areas where they're comfortable, either because they became familiar with them or they had past contact with the location. But the point is, in this case, what we were dealing with was a highly mobile serial murderer 
who didn't come from the area, from Vermont, and had no known connection to the area. There is another thing that is commonly thought, and that is that they will have a definitely identifiable signature, either signature, signature behavior, or they'll leave evidence that clearly indicates that this is the same offender. And they may engage in behavior repetitively. And some of it may serve no practical purpose and may just be an expression of this person's fantasies or this person's individual personality or preferences in behavior. Or be paraphilias. It, be, it, yeah, be it sexual it's, or just personal. But they're not always recognizable at crime scenes. And they're not always disclosed by an offender when, when that offender is questioned. And they cannot always be determined, if in fact they even exist. The other thing is to say that either the serial murderer or the offender will have, there's some people who say, well, they have to have some kind of prior contact with their victims. Other people who say, no, it's a completely random selection. Both could be true. There are some selections of victims that we've found in looking at serial killers that seem completely random. You know, you might say, well, they, they all have a particular type of person that they want to offend against. Well, they might, but that type might be as broad as adults. They like to offend against adults, any kind of adult, or it could be a certain racial preference. It can be as broad or as narrow as this individual deems to be preferable. And that changes with each and every one of these offenders. Their motivations that are driving this behavior are internal, hidden, guarded, highly personal. And sometimes you can get an inkling as to what some of them might be, but guaranteed you won't know all of them. And if that person is disclosing some things when they're finally apprehended, they're not necessarily telling you the truth, or certainly not the whole truth. So this case was later found out to be attributable to a serial murderer. At the time that we looked at it, we did not make that determination. I don't think we could have responsibly made that determination. And so when we talk about our analysis, that has to be kept in mind that we are basing much of what we do on probability, likelihood, because one of the main goals of an analysis, particularly where the offender has not been caught and the victims have not been located, is that we want to facilitate as best we can the police efforts. And the way we do that is by applying our collective knowledge in the unit and the related statistics and demographics and put them all together to give them more of a focus. Our goal is to help the police, first and foremost, locate victims. Secondly, apprehend whoever's responsible based on what we had this early on and just looking at this singular case. I think one of the things that we needed to determine and try to assess was, did the couriers leave voluntarily? We knew a lot about their background 
from the investigation that had already been done by the police, but we needed to determine, was this something that they wanted to leave and disappear? Was this staging, perhaps, the broken window, the cut phone lines? So that's one thing we wanted to take a look at and rule that out. And we didn't think they disappeared voluntarily. One of the things that I thought at the time was that there was a broken window, there were the cut phone lines, but if they had wanted to stage it even more, there would have been more ransacking. They would have not left their medications and glasses and personal items that they would need. Well, and to corroborate that, when they found their vehicle, in a way, it corroborates that they didn't have a vehicle. So how would they get away? But when they found their vehicle, they recognized that items from the trunk, bulky items, not things like jumper cables, but bulky items that would take space in the trunk had been moved to the back seat. That is presumably to make room in the trunk. That is not something that would be probably considered by most people unless they had been involved with abduction before. To stage something like that, where it is likely that one of the victims ended up in the trunk to be transported, I wouldn't think that most people staging an abduction would even think about that. And yet, if you take away the possibility that they were staging this, is it likely that an offender would remove bulky items in a small car's trunk to fit an adult individual into the trunk? Yes. Yes, it is. Makes sense to me. And in terms Uh, of their victimology, they really didn't have any issues that would cause them to want to leave. There were no indications from friends or family they might leave. So victimology at this point was helpful to make help us make the determination that they weren't leaving voluntarily. And there was no activity on their credit cards, no indication that they had made any plans to leave. They left their birds. They love those birds. They left their birds and they likely would not have done that without some arrangements or taking their birds with them. And as you mentioned, the lack of any kind of activity on credit cards, their absences from work, et cetera, all of this pointed to the fact that they were very possibly either had possibly deceased at that point and or detained against their their will. Because even in 2011, hard to carry on the normal activities of a day and not leave some type of electronic type footprint, whether it be with credit cards or on a cell phone or on any way that we come in contact with people during the day. Even reaching out to family, as both were pretty close to their families and and stayed in close contact with them, the fact that there had been absolutely no contact whatsoever with very close relatives, all of these things pointed to one of those two scenarios. You know, it's so important, speaking of relatives, from an investigative standpoint or from a behavioral standpoint, having people that know the victims and know their behaviors, know what they normally do and what they would never do. It's such valuable information when you're doing an analysis or even a regular investigation, because any one of us, if we sit here and think about 
our behaviors and our habits and the kind of things that we do, you can think for yourself, there are certain things your family or your loved ones know, or your colleagues know that she would never leave without her cell phone, or, you know, he would never leave without doing this, that, and the other. It's important to have that information if you're ever, ever in a position where you can be helpful with the investigation. Most of the time when friends and family come forward and they say, this person would never leave on their own, they would never leave their children, they would never leave their family, they would never just leave from work without some sort of notification, they are usually right. And it turns out that those cases end in foul play. What we didn't see at this home was any ransacking. We did see a broken window at the apparent point of entry, but we didn't see ransacking. We didn't see signs of struggle, et cetera, all of which could have lent support to the idea that this was voluntary. But for the reasons we've discussed and more, we did not feel that this was a voluntary missing case. And so then we confront the thing, well, why wasn't they ransacking? And why wasn't there signs of struggle? Because someone, if we're, we're saying that this wasn't voluntary, then someone entered their home forcibly and took control of them and presumably abducted them. Why isn't there any struggle? Well, regardless of their physical health or physical abilities at the time, one would expect that some attempt would be made to combat the offender in this scenario. Yet we don't really see any evidence of that at the scene. Now, that doesn't rule out the fact that some form of resistance didn't occur. But what we can say is that it wasn't successful. And the reason for that was, well, I guess there could have been numerous offenders, but where nothing indicated that there were numerous offenders. And you don't jump to that conclusion unless there is some indication that there is more than one offender. In this case, there was one offender. So how does one offender control two adults. Even if it's a surprise, and even if they're not that physically able, how does the offender do that? Especially if one of those victims is known to keep a handgun under the mattress in her bedroom. Okay, the element of surprise in that, well, there's indication that this would be a nighttime entry in that the birds are still covered, and birds are covered generally before bird owners go to bed, and then they take the covers off in the morning. Covers were still in place when the crime scene was discovered. So we're saying it probably happens at night. So so the element of surprise would be with the offender, but nevertheless, how does he take control? He likely had a firearm. He was able, without any apparent struggle, to gain physical control over two adults. Well, other weapons like a knife or blunt force object of some kind wouldn't be and haven't been statistically as effective in controlling people. And part of the thing is if you're controlling two adults, they can run in separate directions. If you have a knife or a blunt object, you can't threaten two people in two separate locations unless they're very close together. As Susan just pointed out, Lorraine had a gun. She yes. had her own gun, which was missing. So she either had taken it out and didn't use it because he had a gun rather than a knife, or he knew where it was and was able to get to it before her. 
at some point, most likely she grabbed it and he was able to maintain control because he had a gun himself. So I I agree with that. I, I think he had to have had a gun. This is what we thought at the time. And what we said that it was likely to have been an adult white male acting alone. A lot of times people jump to the conclusion because you have two victims, you have to have multiple offenders, or because you have two weapons that were used, you have to have multiple offenders. Statistically, that's not the case. So just because we had two victims, we still went back to probabilities without any other indication at the crime scene of having multiple offenders. We rely again on statistics. We also said that the carriers were likely to be deceased at the time of this analysis. And we said when missing adults are alive, much as as Susan mentioned earlier, when they are alive, whether it's due to kidnapping, you know, or it's voluntary, it's expected that there will be indications of their continued existence. In cases of adults that go missing voluntarily, a note, a voicemail, some other form of notification to friends and a family might be left. And continuing financial and our credit activity, communication-related activities such as telephone or cell phone, computer-based messaging, travel-related activity are examples of this. And if they were still alive, it's unlikely there'd be no indications. So we said that they were likely deceased. The reason they were deceased was because they were murdered. We said that they were likely missing as a result of foul play, specifically a forcible abduction. For evidence of forced entry, telephone lines were cut. Nothing was taken from the residence. So this was not a burglary gone wrong. In burglaries, I won't say it never happens, but it's extremely rare that someone intent on taking property or even harming the people within their home would go to the trouble and take the risk to abduct individuals. So we said their medications, William's wallet and identification, Lorraine's eyeglasses, which were necessary for her to drive, spare clothing wasn't taken. Not only do we think it was not voluntary, but there were no provisions to keep them alive for any length of time. If you're going to hold them, let's say for ransom, you'd take their medications because you'd want them to remain alive. You're going to abduct them, hold them somewhere, and communicate in some manner saying you have them and want to exchange them for a ransom. Not only were there no communications like that, but there was no provisions to enact that plan. So we're saying so far that they were abducted and murdered by an adult white male acting alone. And that was the intention, to abduct them and kill them. Yes, that was the purpose behind the offender's activities. And at this point, we still don't know why, but we knew there's no other indications that this offender had any other intention but to abduct and kill them. There was nothing there. Aside from the birds being covered, the shades and blinds were closed. Overall, the impression and several indications that this happened either on the night of June 7th, 2011, or in pre-dawn hours on the morning of the 8th. The other thing that's interesting to note is that because of the forcible entry, it was unlikely that this was someone that could just walk up to the door, knock on the door, and they were going to let that person in. 
So that may give us an indication as to the relationship between the offender and the victims. There was no indication of escalation in the interaction. It wasn't as if someone had a grievance, went over to discuss it with them, and things got heated and got out of hand. The offender... There was no indication of any kind of violence in the home. It certainly was something that was considered was, were they alive when they left the house or when they were taken? Did they leave the house with someone having them under control or were they disabled or were they possibly deceased before they left the home? But there was no indication in the home. There was no blood, no indication whatsoever that they had, there had been violence committed while still inside the home. And even though we didn't have the results of the forensics testing, some of that would have already been known because the crime scene had been processed. They would have known if they found suspected blood or they saw evidence of a struggle, but there was nothing like that. Right. Just the only damage was from the forced entry. It was a very swift entry. You're you're right. It's just they forcibly ent- entered very quickly, knew right where they were going to immediately control two adults without any signs of a struggle whatsoever. It was swift. It was like the offender had been in the home before. I think it's also indicative of of someone who had had a plan that that this was thought out beforehand, especially with phone lines being cut. This is someone, if he had did not know them personally, was someone who had studied or surveilled them enough to be comfortable with making this entry at night into a home. And the phone lines were outside. So he was prowling outside, went unnoticed in a very you know, close community. Neighbors watch. It's a small, low crime area. And he kind of fit in. He was able to blend in, get the phone lines cut, get into the house very quickly, get them out of the house very quickly. It's all evidence of prior knowledge and planning. Their car was found near an apartment house and it was parked. And one of the observations we said was the couriers were likely murdered shortly after being abducted in close proximity to their home. At the time that car was dropped off, it's very unlikely that the couriers were within that car and alive. If they were still alive, it would involve being in a parking lot of an apartment building and controlling two adult victims to take them out of one vehicle and into another. Certainly people within the apartment could see, maybe hear. So it's unlikely. They were most likely deceased by the time that car was dropped off. Yeah, taken from the home taken someplace else, killed, and then the car brought back. And it was most likely very shortly after they had been removed from their residence. Because, first of all, this offender, although he has, you know, he clearly has obtained control, and he has to maintain that. And now he's not in a private residence where there are no witnesses. Now he has to maintain that. And he's out in public, even if there are very few, you know, in pre-dawn hours, it's there are maybe very few people out and about. Degree of certainty that you're not being observed is reduced the minute you leave the shelter of a private residence, like in this case. Every moment becomes risk for the offender. 
as risky as that was, though, that part of the abduction was clearly part of the plan. And that from the offender's standpoint, removing them from the home was advantageous to the offender. Yes. Now, we're speaking about it retrospectively, and we know that this was attributable to a highly mobile serial murderer. But again, at the time, we did not know that. So when we talked about motivation, that, that is where our initial analysis is different to what we finally came to know. This is why this case is so interesting to me, because I remember us all being there doing this analysis. And most of the time, almost all of the time that cases come into us, we already know it's a serial offender. It's already part of a series we know. So we are analyzing somebody that we know is a serial offender. This one came into us without any other information than what we have presented to you today. So putting ourselves back, I I remember exactly what we were thinking, what our analysis was. I remember coming out of the room after the consultation with the investigators, just thinking this is such a strange one. And it's going to be really interesting to find out who did it, why they were targeted. We really felt like they really needed to go back into their victimology, that something had to be there, that they just hadn't done enough or something. And of course, again, it was so early on, we didn't know. But I think that's why this is so interesting, going back to when we did this analysis, what we were thinking, and then now that we know who did it and his explanations for why he did it, it it is really interesting to kind of go back and reassess it. Even just to say random, that someone was randomly selected, that is just such a rare occurrence that people are randomly selected for murder, that we would never, without some pretty solid ground, that in all probability, they were selected randomly because probability says that victims are not just a minute percentage of the time selected randomly. And that is in serial serial murder cases. Given that this isn't a random selection, what do we have? They're, they're living at a low to moderate risk of this type of thing happening. So what is it? What we said was that, well, it's likely that this offender had some prior contact with one of them or both of them and that they were targeted victims. The choice was, did someone just come upon their home and say, well, this looks like a good place to abduct and murder two people? Or was there some prior contact, some perceived slight or offense against this offender that was being addressed through this crime? And That is actually much more likely. And that's what we said, was that it was a personal motivation to abduct and kill them. So at least one of them was targeted. And that would have had to been from some kind of prior contact. The contact may have been in person, may have been on the telephone, might have been internet. internet. I mean, it could have been business related. Who knows? Somebody in the neighborhood? somebody somewhere that they had interaction with is who would be looking for. And it might not be a a significant interaction. It could just be a passing interaction. We did say that it was likely that there was some prior contact. Now, we don't know to this day whether there actually was, but all we have is the offender saying, no, there wasn't. I didn't know. And that would be great if we had any faith 
that this offender was a, a very truthful individual, but we have, I don't know if there has ever been a case where what someone arrested for, well, we can say murder, there have, but certainly not serial murders, have told the truth. They exaggerate, they minimize, they tell some facts to the nth degree, you can corroborate them, and then they tell other things in the same light, seemingly in the same manner, and they're completely, they're completely made up. And there's no way to decide when they're doing what they're doing. So what we have is an offender saying he didn't know them and they weren't targeted. We don't know if that's true. But they were selected. They were selected. They were clearly selected. He did eventually select this home to begin surveilling it, we believe. And he decided this was a go. And maybe he knew that there were two people in there. I don't know. And we only have what he said about it. We have enough knowledge of what he said matched with the facts of the case to believe that, yes, he was responsible for this. We also told him that the removal of of them from their home prior to murdering them was planned. I believe that is true, but the plan, again, was not necessarily long and intricate. I believe it was made prior to his approach and entry into the home. I believe at this time, however he disposed of their bodies, he had made arrangements for, i.e. dug a hole to dispose of their bodies or had a place in mind in that geographic area in close proximity that he could access with the vehicle and he could be- he could bury them quickly. And with regards to that, another reason for believing that there had been prior personal contact is that because removing a body from a lack of a better term, secure location, like a residence at night with the blinds pulled where no one can see what's going on. Oftentimes, a body is removed or people are removed from that location because from the offender's standpoint, there is some type of connection to that residence, to those people. And so the perception is that if I remove the body, that this will help to lengthen the appearance of my involvement. And so that was another reason for thinking that there was more of a an acquaintance between the offender and the victims because of the offender's desire to remove victims from, from their residence. In kind of a strange twist to things, it could be for very personal reasons. There were obviously things that the offender wanted to do with these victims. In his mind, that necessitated removing them from the house. But early on in the investigation, when we're looking at it and trying to get into go with statistics and with percentages of how other cases have gone, et cetera, it was basis for a slightly different interpretation. It was personal. It was just a very different kind of personal than what we would have initially thought of. In the case that we're going to talk about in the next episode, Samantha Koenig, we know Israel Keys kidnapped her, and it may just be part of his fantasy is kidnapping. We haven't covered this case yet, but there's another case that we looked at where a young woman had been kidnapped out of her place of employment. And when that offender was eventually caught, he discussed his fantasies of wanting to kidnap and rape women. So this could have just been part of a fantasy, not necessarily something that was advantageous to him in successfully committing the crime. If anything, it added to his risk. Even though it was at nighttime, as we previously discussed, 
going from one place to another and trying to control two individuals and all the things that were involved in this case and in the other, all of those steps increased his risk of being seen, apprehended, et cetera. The final, I guess, caution in looking at serial killers is to say, well, there are no apparent motives and that they are completely spontaneous. In the case of the couriers, I do not believe that this was a, there are a lot of indications that this was a planned out event from the entry, the fact that the phone wires were cut, the quick gaining of control over them, the removal of them in their own vehicle, the likely bringing with him a weapon. He took them to a specific place, which I think he had pre-selected in order to kill them and interact with them further along the lines of his fantasy. And then to kill them, I think he had a disposal site for the bodies. And I think further that in parking the car in a a parking lot outside of an apartment building, it was planned that would delay the discovery of the car because it wasn't in some conspicuous spot along the side of the road or close to the murder scene or close to the disposal scene, but it was just parked. And the offender walked away. It gave him time to get away. And as we found out later, as opposed to taking his vehicle, which he had with him, he walked and walked presumably back to his hotel room, which is where he had been staying, freshened up, packed up, and left the area. As opposed to him spontaneously thinking of each step as it occurred, I think he had had this whole thing planned out. I wouldn't be surprised if he had driven uh, on a dry run, that he observed these various locations, disposal site, murder site, abduction site, at all hours of day and night, and that he was confident that he could do this without being apprehended, knew exactly the route he was going to take there and to each of those locations, and then back to his hotel, as opposed to just working outright, everything went as planned. He wasn't a spontaneous killer. He was someone who, while he didn't have long-term plans like other types of murderers that are enacting revenge, or on the other hand, he had a a well-thought-out plan. He had made a specific selection, probably based on the remoteness of the courier's residence and the victimology here. All aspects of this crime say that this was well thought out and well planned and occurred exactly as he would want it to happen. I agree. And at the time, we thought it was well thought out and well planned. And what we know now is that the selection of the victims may not have been thought out long in advance, but the commission of a crime like this had been thought out years in advance. I think we can believe that when he tells the investigators when he's arrested that he had planned things for years and he would bury kidnapping equipment in areas where he planned to commit a crime. So this was something that was really, really well planned out. And it showed. It showed at the crime scenes. It showed during the investigation But the selection is what was difficult for us. 
the selection process. And I think that was more spontaneous. Randomness puts right. a different spin on it that you, you can't really prepare for. It's like Bob was saying, it's rare, but it's just so atypical. It's hard to ignore the probabilities that you have in favor of something. Randomness was along interpersonal lines, but it was not a random selection logistically. He found a residence that was out of the way, that where only two people lived that did not ha have an alarm, which could have been a whole other problem. I think his selection of both the location and the fact that there were only two people there and the fact that he could get there from where he chose to stay while he was in Vermont, I think all of that was, although not the type of plan we think of when we think of someone ruminating for years or even weeks to, to get revenge on someone or to kill someone for another motivation. He satisfied his need for planning in he, let's say you have proverbial boxes to tick. Okay, I need a, a residence with one or two people in it because I, I, can, I know I can comfortably control those with a weapon. I need residence that's not really observable to other residences. And there should be several I could pick from in this location. Absolutely. I think what I was trying to point out is that random selection, whether it's planned or unplanned, creates much larger degree of difficulty from an investigative standpoint in trying to determine who it is. Because we rely so heavily on being able to identify people through the probabilities. Like in this case, who commits the crime and then disappears to another part of the country. Not somebody that is from the area, so he can't be, won't be considered as a suspect because nobody is familiar with him in the area. No yeah, known yeah. connection. Right. Yeah. There's no known connection. He's not going to show up on the radar in any means unless he's left forensic evidence. And he's in the system. Right. And, and we don't know exactly how long he was there, but he was clearly there other than what, you know, he offered, but was clearly there long enough from what Bob was saying. I mean, there, there had to be some, clearly he had planned because of the kits, et cetera, that had previously been placed. But then also, okay, I, I'm going to do this here for whatever reason decided it's happening here. And now who's it going to happen with and why these two? And then the selection there, was it a matter of hours? Was it a matter of a day or two? And okay, this is a good residential area. I can get in and out of here without really being seen, especially in the evening. They kept a very regular routine during their work week as far as going to bed and getting up in the morning within a couple of days could have some assurance that, okay, I know these guys, it's normally lights out at this time and they wake up at this time in the morning. So I have this window. They both had medical issues. I don't know how much of that was apparent from people that would just see them on the street. And thinking about it, we know that Lorraine walked with a limp and William had a stiff back, may have been kind of overweight. It maybe gave an appearance of being less than physically strong. So those things with someone who is then trying to think about controlling two adults that this couple looks good for my scenario. And instead, because they had such a regular routine during the week, it would not have taken that long to 
ascertain these things. The term random needs to be clarified here in that it's random from the view of outsiders. Yeah. And it's random from us from any social context, but it is not random in his selection. Once he puts himself in, in this geographic area, and then he meticulously decides how to select his victims. His decision to commit this crime against the couriers at their residence and do it in the way he did it and take the steps he took, none of that is random. That is all planned. Right. We know that he used as his cover story that he was traveling from Alaska to upstate New York to visit relatives. And with a trip of that length, it would be hard to say how long it's going to take you or where you're going to stop along the way. He probably knew exactly where he was going to stop and had, in fact, had a kit apparently hidden out there for this purpose. But as far as excuses to other people about, well, why didn't you, I thought you were going to show up this day. Ah, yeah, I get tired and I didn't, you know, I stopped for the night or whatever. There was no real accountability traveling that far. There's no real accountability to on either end to say, well, you definitely would be here, here, or here. He's most likely giving approximate, you know, I'll be there within this window of a couple of days. In his confession to investigators, Israel Keyes admitted to the abduction and murders of the couriers. He said that on the night of June 8th, 2011, he broke into their home, tied them up, and drove them to an abandoned farmhouse. He said he shot and killed Bill before he sexually assaulted and strangled Lorraine. The farmhouse was demolished, and despite extensive searches, their bodies have never been found. That's it for this episode of The Consult. On the next episode, we'll discuss the abduction and murder of Samantha Koenig on February 1st, 2012. It was this investigation that ultimately provided us the answers to the couriers. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Consult Pod. Thank you for listening. <laughs>